Hi, this is Julie Davis, chair of the American Birding Association's Board of Directors, and I want to ask you to help us send a young birder to camp. Each year, the ABA hosts camps where young people who are passionate about birds can expand their birding skills while experiencing nature firsthand with their peers. With help from supporters like you, we are able to provide scholarships so that all young people can have the opportunity to attend our camps. And now through June 30th, the ABA board has pledged to match all gifts received up to $17,500. This means your impact will be doubled, ensuring even more teens will have access to this experience through the ABA Camp Scholarship Program. Double your impact by making a donation online before June 30th at aba.org slash appeal or call us at 800-850-2473. Hello and welcome to the American Birding Podcast from the American Birding Association. I am Nate Swick. I have been following with some interest the tale of the Ontario Ferruginous Hawk, I guess Ontario and Michigan Ferruginous Hawk. We'll get to that. It's a rarity story with a distinctly 21st century angle. The background is told by our friends at Birds Canada. A ferruginous hawk, a western Great Plains raptor, turned up in southwestern Ontario in early May. This was Ontario's ninth provincial record, so a rare bird by whatever standards you want to ascribe. It unfortunately had an encounter with a passing vehicle. I don't believe that it was struck by the vehicle, though it did seem like it was disoriented and ended up landing in a nearby waterway where it was collected by a local, taken to a raptor rehabilitation facility. It spent a few days there, got medical attention, was deemed fit to release in in relatively short order. However, while in captivity, researchers took the opportunity to fit the bird with a cellular GPS tracker, which pings to local MODIS towers, which it was wearing when it was eventually released, which allowed people to follow this bird as it tooled around southwest Ontario, pinging various towers, and eventually turned northwest into Michigan near Detroit. Interesting stuff. And that is where the story gets even more sort of crazy, as it is a rare bird for Michigan, too. Their last Ferruginous hawk was seen in the state 10 years ago. So, you know, of note to the Michigan birding community, but the tracker is not super precise, not in real time. Resolution's about 15 kilometers. So at best, you sort of know roughly where the bird is and not exactly where the bird is. So Michigan birder Caleb Putnam and friends, hi, Caleb, if you are listening, made a prediction as to where the bird might end up based on the track it was sort of taking and their local knowledge. They knew a spot where the hawk had been heading in a roundabout way, If the saying, as the crow flies, is meant to represent a direct path between two points, as the hawk flies is perhaps the the opposite of that. Anyway, this site was sort of a wide open expanse of a wet meadow, I guess, that Caleb and Cruz suspected would be be attractive to a ferruginous hawk, as it was the closest thing in the area to a prairie that they had in western Michigan. And so, based on those tips, they went out to look for the bird, and lo and behold, Caleb found it. I think this is cool because there are a few things to think about here. One— from the birding perspective, is this cheating? I don't really think so because it's not real time. And finding this bird did require the sort of knowledge of place and bird behavior that we generally credit to skilled birders. 
as we know, experienced birders occasionally have a hunch that a certain vagrant bird can be found in a certain place at a certain time, uh, though searching for an individual bird certainly is a novel angle to this. Two, the geolocator date includes altitude, so you might have the bad luck to go to a place where you expect to intersect with a bird only to have it fly over you at a thousand kilometers high or something. Good, good luck spotting it then. They did not have that. They were lucky here. And three, this is an opportunity to answer at least sort of partly the question that birders have asked about vagrants for as long as we have chased vagrants. Where do they go when people stop seeing them? Do they return to their home range? Do they die? Do they continue to cross the continent like a certain sea eagle? I guess we still don't know and we'll probably never know, but this illuminates a little piece of that mystery and that's cool. As of the time that I'm recording this segment, about a week before you are listening to it, the bird was last detected on the 6th of June south of Grand Rapids, Michigan. It's kind of an emotus tower dead zone right now, but it may pop up again. Perhaps it has by now. Uh, I'll give you the link to track it yourself. It looks like it's heading towards Indiana around the Great Lakes. So Indiana birders, Illinois birders, keep an eye on that track. You never know. On the show this week, I'm excited to welcome science writer Jennifer Ackerman to talk about her new book, What an Owl Knows, all about how cutting-edge research on one of the most enigmatic groups of birds on the planet is revealing so much cool stuff about their behaviors and their biology. It's fascinating, as you'd expect from Jennifer. I'm excited to share it with you. All that after this week's Rare Birds. Ted Floyd here, editor of the American Birding Association's Birding Magazine and an occasional guest on this podcast. I invite you to come birding in the Colorado Rockies next month with Western field ornithologists and Colorado field ornithologists for their joint 2023 convention. This will be one of the biggest birding events this summer and takes place July 19th through 23rd in picturesque Summit County, Colorado. This convention includes four days of field trips covering habitat from pinyon juniper foothills to alpine tundra. It's a great opportunity to pick up those high elevation specialties. Field trip leaders will include Nathan Peeplo, yours truly, and the convention's keynote speaker, Jesse Berry from the Cornell Lab of Ornithology. Other highlights include workshops and science sessions, young birder field trips and social, a bio blitz, and local, national, and international exhibitors for optics, tours, and environmental nonprofits. For more information, including lodging and to register, visit www.cobirds.org. This is your Rare Bird Focus for the second week of June 2023. One of the more mind-boggling records of the year so far came from Dare County, North Carolina, where a plumbius vireo was seen in Kitty Hawk. This represents one of the very few eastern records for this great basin breeding version of the continent-spanning solitary vireo complex. There are a small handful of records of this species around the Great Lakes in Ontario, Michigan, Illinois, and Wisconsin, and another in Alabama. But one wonders if there could be more that have been overlooked over the years. And now up to New Brunswick, where a black-browed albatross was seen just offshore, recorded following a lobster boat off Misku, very close to the coast as it would have to be given New Brunswick's limited pelagic territory. This is a first record for the province, and one of only a few for the Maritimes. Records of this species are scattered, but it is certainly the most regularly recorded albatross in the North Atlantic, with birds likely coming from their very large breeding colonies on the Falklands and South Georgia Island. Those are the highlights for this week. Uh, for the whole rarity landscape, check out the ABA Rare Bird Alert on Fridays at 
aba.org slash rba. And for the most up-to-the-minute reports of notable birds in the ABA area, join the ABA Rare Bird Alert Facebook group and also check in on ABA Community. Birders and bird enthusiasts are so fortunate that a science writer with the curiosity and credibility of Jennifer Ackerman so frequently turns her mind to birds. She follows her critically acclaimed books, The Genius of Birds and the Bird Way, with a new one called What an Owl Knows, the New Science of the World's Most Enigmatic Birds, looking at, well, owls, which have amazed and mystified humans for as long as there have been humans, honestly. Uh, she joins me to talk about it. Hello, Jennifer. Congratulations on yet another a really, really engaging bird book. Oh, thank you so much, Nate. It's really a delight to be here. This is a, a, a slightly different book from your previous ones about birds that took a close look at cognition and, and behavior across all species. Uh, this is in some ways sort of narrower in that it focuses just on owls. How did you settle on owls as a group for this newest book? And did sort of the seed of it come from those previous, those previous ones? Yes, yes and no. So I, I did want to focus on a family or a group of birds and really take a, a kind of deep dive into mm -hmm. their biology and behavior. You know, and I thought about uh, different different families of birds. And, you know, I truly, I love birds, all birds. But, you know, owls, they're just so unique in the bird world. Yeah. Um, and, you know, these night hunters with their you know, quiet flight and they just have these, you know, extraordinary senses that allow them to... to um, uh, function at night. And I, I, when I started to think about writing a book about owls, you know, it just <laughs> kind of made my head sizzle with questions. Yeah, I mentioned it's overwhelming. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, I just, the very basics, like what makes an owl an owl? And, yeah. you know, how do they get to be the way they are? They're so different from other birds, you know, and why did they cross that boundary into to night? And, um, you know, they have this, this kind of funny, reputation for wisdom, but, you know, are they right. in fact, you know, intelligent? Are they, you know, functioning on instinct or are they actually uh, learning and, and using cognition? So I wanted to explore these questions and really find out what do we actually know about owls? And it's quite a lot, it turns out, you know, we've been studying them for a very long time. And it's really only lately there have been the kind of advances and some of the technological breakthroughs that have that are allowing us to solve some of the mysteries that really have been around for centuries. And so it made it a, a good time to write this book. Yeah, no doubt, for sure. I mean, that's the sort of thing that that really uh, impressed me was that all this work is being done on owls. We, we think of like as a bird group, it's a bird mm -hmm. group that we feel like we know pretty well. Um, they're, they're so unique. They're so enigmatic, as you say. And so much has happened in the last decade, decade and a half, to help us or solve these mysteries that that owls have you know, presented for for millennia. That's exactly right, and I think some of the um, some of that is due to, uh, as I said, some of these new advances. You know, we have these new eyes in the field. You know, we have yeah. infrared cameras. Yeah. We have radio tagging to track movements. We have drones to explore remote owl habitat. You know, there's new advances in, in satellite telemetry that are illuminating the movements of owls. And and one thing that new technology that really fascinated me was these remote acoustic 
monitoring techniques, mm-hmm. you know, placing these tiny audio recorders in over these big landscapes and, and listening in on owls. And it's helped us to understand their populations, you know, the numbers and everything. And it's also offered a real window into their, their social lives, which I think has been fascinating. Uh, you know, we also have nest cams that have really, I think, revolutionized the study of, of the interactions of these birds at their nests. And um, so all of those technologies, I think, are really um, uh, shedding a lot of a new light. Um, and Sometimes they're, literally, yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, truly, truly. Um, and But I will say that that a lot of the new, a lot of the understanding is coming out of those people who have been working in the field, you know, banding, doing long-term studies for, mm-hmm. for decades now. And, and they're, um, they're assisted by this new technology, but, but a lot of the new insights um, are really, you know, coming out of their work. Yeah, the, the story of this owl research is a lot of times the story of these sort of unique group of researchers that are doing this mm-hmm. work. You have talked to bird researchers, rehabilitators extensively before in your previous, uh, in your previous mm-hmm. books. Mm-hmm. Um, do you find that people that work with owls to be different in any way than other bird <laughs> researchers because i feel like so much of what owls do is shrouded in darkness so yes. much of what they do both literally and figuratively and i feel like it requires a certain sort of mindset that is, is slightly different than other people who work with other birds because so much of it is so difficult absolutely i mean i you know i have worked with a lot of um a lot of different kinds of bird scientists um and i would say that that owl people are unique in um, a number of ways. For one thing, they they are willing to take on the, the really enormous challenge of studying these birds because they're they operate at night. They're active at night. They're mm-hmm. active often in very remote areas. They're um, that are difficult to access. They're um, they're hard to find. You know, they're yeah. they're so yes. elusive. They're so well camouflaged, and so you really have to be. Um, absolutely, you know, dedicated to to spending hours in the field, um, many of them, you know, without actually seeing the birds. You know, I was just absolutely amazed at how um, how devoted these scientists are and, and also how clever they are at really devising ways to, um, to trap, to find the birds and to trap them. And it's not an easy task because Owls are just so wary and uh, and often not easily fooled by mist nets and and um, you know various forms of of trapping. But but the, the scientists I work with are just ingenious at getting inside an owl's head yeah. and sort of figuring out okay this is this will draw in the, this particular kind of owl. And darned if you know it it doesn't work. Sometimes it took a lot of trial and error, but um, but then they would they would get there eventually. Yeah, you you paint a really compelling picture of Denver Holt and his team of researchers in, in Montana. I, I've known of Denver by reputation for a very long time, but it was really neat to read about the work that they are actually doing on the ground uh, and up in trees frequently, uh, looking for an incredibly wide variety of owls in that part of the continent. Um, you spent some time with them, obviously, doing that work. How did you? How did how did it appeal to you? <laughs> I loved it. I mean, it is my favorite thing to do in the world is to to traipse around after scientists in the field, you know, people who are completely obsessed with their subject. And, and it was, it was thrilling to be, um, to sort of tag along with Denver Holt's team um, that, for one thing, he's got, you know, he's got um, some right-hand people who are great scientists themselves. He also has this crew of citizen scientists mm-hmm. who are 
volunteering their time to do this work out in the field. And there, I spent time with one fellow, Steve Hero, who's a heart surgeon, um, recently retired, but he started working with these owls when he was still doing surgery. And he now he's considered one of the foremost experts on um, the uh, reproductive behavior of northern pygmy owls, you know, it, 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 it's really astonishing that the kind of, um, of effort that people are willing to, to put into this. And part of it is that, that scientists like Denver Holt are just so, they're charismatic, they're great mm -hmm. leaders, they really get people excited about this. And they, they know how, I mean, Denver really knows how to build a team and how to work with that, the, the group and, you know, and get people motivated and excited. And, uh, but it is really, really hard work. And, um, you know, D Denver does work up in the in the Arctic. And I, mm -hmm. I didn't get up there for this book. But, you know, he talks about, <laughs> about what a slog it is to go over that soft tundra ground looking for snowy owl nests. And uh, I talk about dedication. For sure. Yeah, snowy owls, it's hard not to, not to go off on a tangent, but that is a bird that we have learned so much about because of this yeah. new technology. Um, so much that it's sort of flipped a lot of the narrative on these big snowy owl eruptions that we see coming down into the lower 48 and, and southern Canada with some regularity. You know, for years, I grew up as a birder, as a naturalist, thinking that these are birds that are in a real bad way. They're starving. They're having difficulty um, getting by. But, you know, what we've learned because of all these cool tracking technology and, and basically, basically, you know, paying a close eye on the trends of lemmings and birds and how they interact is that it's actually evidence of a boom year of snowy owls. It's amazing how this research has completely flipped what we thought we knew about these birds. Absolutely. It's, it's, it's exactly right. And, you know, it's, it's, um, it's partly about the, these eruptions that they have, also about the migratory movements. Um, you know, the, we've discovered that, that there, there's some snowy owls that actually migrate north yeah, when they, in, in the middle of the winter, <laughs> into the Arctic darkness. And yeah. you know, why are they doing this? Well, it turns out that they're able to hunt over the sea ice. And they're, you know, they're finding these, these open patches of water that are full of big eiders and, and other kinds of seabirds and ducks. And they're feeding on them. And that has been, you know, largely the, the, the result of, of satellite telemetry and, uh, and that has, you know, really helped um, increase our understanding. What sort of appeals to you personally about these birds, this group of birds, uh, before you started working on this book? And how has that sort of changed since you went through the work and, and talked to all these researchers and, and actually yeah. wrote the book? Yeah. Well, so one of my earliest experiences with an owl was um, an eastern screech owl in my backyard. And when my kids were little, we we put an owl box on the, the old silver maple tree behind our house, just yards from our, the bay window in our kitchen. And so we could really get a good view. And one spring, an eastern screech owl took up residence in the box, and it was roosting in the day and um, with just this little round face yeah. showing in the hole, <laughs> and then it would vanish to hunt at night. And the, this little owl really gave my my young girls the first lesson in, in top of the, <laughs> the line predators. <laughs> you know, I never saw this owl come and go. I, I sat and watched to try to, to see it, um, but some nights you could hear it um, 
shrieking. And <laughs> in the morning, you know, out of that round hole in the box would hang the like the wing of a robin or the tail of a blue jay or once the, <laughs> the whole body of a morning dove. And yeah. then oh. it would, you know, this thing would jerk, jerk until it vanished into the hole. And <laughs> oh, when I took down the box, you know, it was packed with, with all kinds of stuff. Um, you know, I, I was very focused on, okay, they're, they're, how do they, you know, um, their the hearing and their, their vision yeah. at night and some of these extraordinary skills they have. But one of the really surprising um, uh, discoveries that, that just kind of shifted my, my view of owls completely was the, um, it was ex- exploring their communication skills. And, um, you know, they really are phenomenal communicators. You know, we think of owls as just kind of hooting and that's, yeah. that's all they do. But the, the fact is they have, um, you know, really sophisticated uh, communication, vocal repertoires and, you know, complicated conversations that are just teeming with meaning. So mm-hmm. um, uh, we're finding that, you know, they, they have... Um, their calls and their hoots, um, they, they squawk, you know, they have shrieks. There's actually a whole range of vocalizations. And that they, those carry very specific information um, about all kinds of things, the, the, their individual identity, their sex, size, weight, state of mind, and their voices are individual. So they yeah, have that story yeah. that you tell in it. It was incredible with the eagle owls yeah yeah that. so they have these distinct recognizable voices that um that can actually fingerprint individuals and what's fascinating about that you know the owls use them to their voices and their vocalizations to recognize one another you know communicate with mates allies ra- rivals that sort of thing but we humans can use them too and really for for two purposes um the individuality of their voices allows us to uh to count birds, individual birds. So that's really a help in, in determining population and in mm-hmm. conservation efforts. And then it's giving us this, this, um, this window into their social lives. And, um, I, I, I always thought owls were, you know, monogamous, faithful to their mates, but this new understanding of, um, their, the individuality of their voices is showing us that in fact, there's, there's a lot of hanky panky going on. There's a lot of, <laughs> a lot of mate switching and, yeah. um, you know, it's a real, it's a real soap opera in the, in the owl world. And, um, I thought that was really interesting insight. Yeah, it is pretty cool how for, for a millennia, people thought owls had this, uh, reputation for wisdom, as you said, uh, early on. And then, you know, that we went through a period where people were like, oh, you know, owls actually, they just look smart because they have those big eyes. Their brains are actually sort of small. And now we're almost coming full circle again, where we're learning that there is this sort of really advanced communication and, and they're doing a lot more than we ever sort of realized. Uh, maybe, maybe we gave owls a little bit of a too short of a shrift there for a while. It's nice to see that come back around. <laughs> yeah, it really is. And I, I think we used to think that, that, owls really acted only by instinct, you know, their mm-hmm. behavior was pretty much completely hardwired. And now we understand that that's not true, that, that they, they learn throughout their lives. And as you say, they're these sophisticated communicators. Um, you know, they, the scientists and the tr- people who train raptors um, mm-hmm. also thought for a long time that owls weren't bright. They're very hard to read. They're hard to train. And so people didn't know how to interpret their very subtle behaviors. But those trainers now are doing a 180 and realizing that that these birds are in fact very smart. They have big brains, just as as we do, you know, and and 
crows and parrots too. And they're f- flexible in the behavior. They're nuanced, mm-hmm. you know? So um, one a story that, that I loved was uh, told to me by ornithologist uh, Rob Beauregard, and he has to train um, barred owls so that to come to a whistle so that he can tag them with a GPS tracker. And what he did these is he- wild barred owls? These are wild barred owls. And just Incredible. listen to this. He, he puts down a mouse on a grassy area. He whistles. Um, the bird comes and gets the, the mouse. Um, he puts down another mouse, whistles again, another mouse whistles again. And after three mice, these birds will come to the whistle and they, they will learn this in a day. And it takes only three sessions um, to train them. Wow. And one owl that he, um, uh, he told me about remembered that training a full three years later and actually wow. came to the whistle, even though, you know, years had passed and he, it, but he remembered what the, the whistle meant. Yeah. That's wild. You know, as yeah. a reader and someone that knew, I guess, a little about a little bit about owls and their biology, the chapter that I think came as the biggest surprise, and you, you kind of uh, talked about it a little bit before, was the one where you talk about what we learned from captive owls, from rehabbed mm-hmm. owls that can be released mm-hmm. and are used in these education programs. Um, was this just sort of in the in the communities of rehabilitators and um, you know education programmers and people like that? Uh, you know, the connection between this stuff that we learn from these captive owls and this stuff that we are learning from people who are doing research on wild owls seems, it dovetails really nicely. Um, how recently has this come together? Well, it's really been only, I would say, in the last five or 10 years. Um, I, I talked with a woman who's really considered one of the the, the masters of training owls. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, she's one of these people that did a 180 on on owls and really felt like, oh, gosh, it's so much more going on here. Yeah. And what she does now is she, she teaches people how to read the body language of owls. And they're, yeah. you know, they have... Um, she shows two images of a, of a long-eared owl. You know, one is in distress and fearful and its eyes are wide open and popped out, kind of bulging. Its feathers are all slicked back and its facial disc is really pulled taut and its feet are kind of grippy. Um, and it's in a kind of vertical cringe. Mm-hmm. And then she compares that with a long-eared owl that's comfortable, relaxed, its eyes are partly opened, its pupils are small, you know, it has a relaxed facial disc and its feathers are all fluffed out. And, you know, these are, these are indicators that these birds really, they have a feelings and emotions, they have, Mm -hmm. you know, fear, irritation, um, comfort, relaxation. And so what we're really, we're learning a tremendous amount about their, their personality, emotions, and their individuality. You know, one, one kind of, um, she told me a story about two uh, northern sawwood owls that she trained, and they were radically different in the way that they learned and how long it took to train them. And so, so owls, they're learning about the, really the individuality, the personality of these birds um, by working closely with them one-on-one. Writing a book like this is obviously an enormous amount of work, and I imagine sort of shaping it into a compelling narrative is one of the more difficult parts of writing a book like this. What do you focus on when you are writing to kind of keep that connective thread throughout the throughout the whole whole book? Yeah. So um when, <laughs> one of the big challenges of a book like this is that 
there's so much material and it's so, so fascinating and it's overwhelming. And sometimes chapters just, you know, balloon. <laughs> and, but it's actually the, the editing of the extraneous, you know, the sculpting and crafting of the narrative, the story that I find a really joyful experience. And, mm-hmm. and what I like to imagine is that I'm, I'm writing a letter to a friend, an interested friend. And that really helps me sort out what's kind of essential and interesting and what I can, can leave out on the, the cutting room floor. Yeah, was there anything that you found particularly fascinating about owls that ended up having to be left on the cutting room floor against uh, you really wanted to keep it in, but it just didn't quite fit? Yes, I I wrote a a lengthy story about the conservation efforts to bring back the Moorpork owl, the Moorpork Island Moorpork owl. And, um, you know, that population, it's a subspecies. It got down to one bird and Hmm. there were... It was just an incredibly fascinating story. I thought of these heroic efforts and the people that were involved. And um, I wrote a very long story about it. And then it just really didn't fit. I had to cut it down dramatically. And, you know, it's painful to <laughs> leave anything on the cutting room floor. I mean, because it all feels important and yeah, yeah. interesting. Um, but, you know, you, you do have to, writing is all about selection. And, um, you know, and I really like to focus very, um, very much on the storytelling and the narrative. And, um, you know, what fits in is is what makes it, you know, what fits, what, what boosts the story and, and makes that, as you say, that through line really um, solid is, you know, is what is what remains. And, and a lot of stuff is is eliminated. Your, your previous books on birds um, were pretty much focused on cognition. Was it fun to take that broader look and just, you know, completely dive into Owliana? Uh, to the extent that you did to to write this book, yeah, I really loved it. I mean, <laughs> one of the one of the favorite chapters is on, um, you know, owl reproduction and how they raise their families and the, the, you know just the 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 crazy kinds of ways that they court. Um, you know, <laughs> yeah. short-eared owls. You know, they do this sky dance where they shoot straight yeah. up in the air and they clap their wings beneath them. You know, like they're applauding their own performance. And and um, northern sawwit owls. You know, they toot at like 160 toots per minute to try to draw in a female. I just love that stuff. Um, mm-hmm. And you know, some of the 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 ways that that the different kinds of funny behaviors of chicks and their when they're just before fledging, when they're branching and the, the kind of silly things that they do, they know they crawl out of the nest and and out onto a limb of a tree and they don't yet know how to fly. And sometimes they fall off the tree and then they can actually climb the tree, um, get back up into the nest. Um, kind of amazing. Uh, so I, I did love just, yeah, casting a, a bit of a wider net and, and you know, sort of seeing, seeing the whole natural history of, uh, of a group of birds was really fun. Yeah, and not just the natural history, the, this cultural history, too. I mean, owls yeah. are probably unique among a, any of the bird species that I can think of and that there is this very long cultural angle. There is, people have been telling myths and stories and all sorts of, you know, narratives about owls for as long as people have been around and telling those stories. One of the the first birds whose image was ever put on a cave painting was, in fact, probably a Eurasian eagle owl. So people were thinking about and wondering about owls even back then. That's got to be kind of take you in some really interesting directions as well, I imagine. 
Yeah, that was fascinating. There's a chapter called Half Bird, Half Spirit, and it's really mm -hmm. about the way that these birds have entered our stories, our myths, our um, symbolism mm -hmm. in a way that really no other bird has. I mean, it's just, no it's, it's um, the owls loom large in, uh, in the human imagination. And I really think it's a, um, a combination of things that makes these birds so powerful you know we we do we see ourselves in them They're, they have these round heads and yeah. forward-facing eyes and you know some species are really cute and baby-like but they're also so different from us and they're kind of uncanny you know creatures of the night and so i think it's the whole package that's that's really exciting and also in some cultures very troubling you know they're linked with death they're considered omens of evil and um, they, you know, they, they, it's spooky. They appear out of the dark without advance notice. You know, yeah, their things... sounds don't help either. Yeah. <laughs> no, and they, they've got those, you know, those weird calls. So um, I was fascinated by the the range of attitudes toward mm -hmm. owls and in, in you know across cultures and um, and the um, and the way that they appear in our artwork, as you say, they were in the, the Chauvet Caves in southeastern France and thirty six thousand years ago, and now they you know they crop up in artwork of all kinds from you know ancient Egypt all the way up to, to you know owl memes are all over the place and yeah, right. social media and uh, and you know Picasso loved um, to include owls in his etchings and prints and so it they they're they're really um, an outside size a presence i think in terms of birds and in relation to humans was there any one owl species that you looked at that surprised you or spoke to you in any way i think probably the um the great gray owl mm -hmm. um i think because it, it, there's that owl, I mean, for one thing, I think of it as a sort of the iconic owl. And yeah. I was really um, interested to learn about it, how it um, uses its hearing to, you know, detect its yeah. prey beneath snow, you know, it, it, like a foot and a half of snow. It's that was just seemed absolutely extraordinary to me and you know has been a great mystery and the scientists now are beginning to tease apart well how can this bird actually do this yeah. um and i was fascinated by that the other species that i um was just so intrigued with were, were burrowing owls because of <laughs> they're they're so um they're so unusual, you know, they nest yeah. in the ground in burrows of other creatures like prairie dogs and, and uh, armadillos, badgers, and they, the males decorate their burrows, yeah. you know? I, <laughs> I had no idea. And we, that was our bird of the year last year. And I thought that I knew a lot about burrowing owls, but I had no idea that they decorated their burrows like that. It's, yeah. It's so I, cool. Fascinating. And they decorate them with all kinds of things, you know, coyote scat and bison dung and, um, corn stalks and corn cobs and bits and pieces of fabric, you know, bits and pieces of concrete, wh whatever they can find. Yeah. And um, they're very, <laughs> they're really very uh, avid collectors. And what was fascinating to me was that this was not about drawing in a female, you know, that, and I've written about bower birds and how they collect objects to, to impress a female. Well, the, the male 
um, burrowing owl only does this decorating after his female, the female mate, is already in the burrow laying eggs. So this decoration is about telling all the other males in the area, this place is mine and don't you come near. Um, David Johnson, who's this wonderful uh, expert on burrowing owls, said, you know, if you want to say you're a tough guy in the world of burrowing owls, decorate. <laughs> yeah, right. And I also love the revelation that they, um, you know, they eat scorpions and stuff. And sometimes the venom gets on like the chick's talons and beaks. And when people handle them, they get, yeah. they react that whether intentional or not, you, you have, I guess you sort of have to wonder. Yeah. Like maybe that, that is a little intentional. Yeah. I mean, flammulated owls, elf owls, that's what they do. They remove the venomous yeah. stinger before they mm -hmm. feed the, the um, scorpions to their young. And, you know, I, I, whether it's evolutionary adaptation or whatever, it's a form of genius, you know, yeah. I, it's just sure. uh, uh, fascinating to me. Jennifer Ackerman is the author of the new What an Owl Knows, The New Science of the World's Most Enigmatic Birds. It is available wherever you find books, including our partners at Media Books, where ABA members can get a discount on that book. It's well worth a read. It's, a, it's really compelling and really interesting on one of the most fascinating groups of birds out there. Uh, Jennifer, thank you so much for your time. Congratulations on the book, and I look forward to whatever you come up with next. Thank you so much, Nate. It was great to be with you. The American Birding Podcast is brought to you by the American Birding Association. If you enjoy this podcast, the best way to support it is to join the ABA. You get lots of great benefits, including our magazines, discounts to partners like Princeton University Press, Beauty of Books, Cornell Lab of Ornithology, and more. You can find out how to do all of that at aba.org slash join. Technical production is by John Lowry, who wonders how Rob Beauregard was able to keep his barred owl training sessions for becoming a free-for-owl. Social media is by Maggie Fitzgibbon, who offers a name for keepers of education owls working with perhaps a particularly well-camouflaged individual bird. This is a freebie. How about Houdini? You can find us online at aba.org on social media, most everywhere as American Birding Association. On Twitter, we are at ABA. I know that owls have always had a reputation for wisdom, but I do wonder why I've never heard them referred to as know it owls. Questions, comments can come to podcast at aba.org. I'm Nate Swick. Thanks for listening. Stay healthy, everybody. See you next week. <laughs>